Bodmaster saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bowl an underarm delivery. We're going to bowl an underarm. We have believed it. And that's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian McKechnie, the crowd boom. And it's all over. I think it was a very poor performance. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. In 2000, he was caught up in a well-documented cocaine scandal. I've had more publicity over, you know, one stupid little incident like that than the whole career, um, which is, to me is far more important. Well, it's a remarkable story, yeah. and uh, it's one that's uh, still getting headlines 20-odd years Absolutely. later. Absolutely. The Kiwis will not let this go. Yeah, get lost. You're a loser. Get off the stage. Central to the claims is an alleged fraud involving money being deposited to a Hungarian bank account, but Dalton says the syndicate was the victim of a scam. How it will all finish, who the hell knows, but what I do know, once this America's Cup is over, you can guarantee there'll be another scandal coming down the pike for the next one. Well, the dust is still airborne, really, in New Zealand's most recent sporting scandal, but the furore around Team New Zealand involving Hungarian bank accounts and subterfuge is distinctly 21st century, and it made us a bit nostalgic for simpler times, you know? When a sports scandal involved an all-black getting drunk and sconing a bouncer before disappearing into the outback for half a century. So today on The Detail, we thought we'd get legendary sports journalist and News Talk ZB host Phil Gifford on to cast his mind back to some of the more salacious stories he's covered in his career. Hello, Phil. Yeah, hello there. Yes, <laughs> lovely to join you. Join you. <laughs> I was um, I was looking this up before. In the time that you've been covering sport in New Zealand, we've yep. had thirteen prime ministers and God knows how many leaders of the opposition. Of all of the sports scandals in that time, what sticks out to you? Well, I would say the most effect on the country without question was the 81 Springbok Tour. Whether you'd call that a scandal or not, we can perhaps discuss that <laughs> soon. But probably yeah, probably the Keith Murdoch thing in 1972 when he played against Wales, scored a try, was the hero of the day. The All Blacks beat Wales, of course. And then within a couple of days, he got on the team bus, apparently. I wasn't in the UK, but I was working as a journalist then. Got on the team bus and said, hooray, boys, I'm off. And the poor bloke was sent home, but got off the plane in Australia. And exactly as you said, he disappeared into the outback. It's such a bizarre story, that one. And and he died a couple of years ago, Keith Murdoch. And so I suppose it's one of those things that's never really going to be answered, is it? No, not really. And there's there's been a tremendous amount written about Keith Murdoch. Uh, There's been a book by Ron Polinski, one of our great sports historians. There was a very good play by a woman that I used to work with called Margot McRae, who got the only interview that I'm aware of ever with Keith Murdoch. The the late, great Terry McLean, T.P. McLean, flew out, chartered the plane and flew out into the outback in Western Australia, I think he was at that stage, and uh, (laughs) McLean reported that when Murdoch saw him, he said, see that patch of oil on the tarmac over there? I'm going to rub your face in that unless you get back in the car, go back out to the airport and bugger off, you know. So, um, But Margot, Margot McRae, actually, it was an incredibly sad story. Margot's a very nice woman. We were working together in the 1980s on a uh, rugby show called Mud and Glory, and Margot flew to Queensland and arranged. She met Keith, and it was a very strange requirement for the interview in that Keith said to her, I'll do the interview but you can only record vision, you can't record sound. So Margot had to report what he was saying. I suppose lip readers could have worked it out too. But 
the really sad sort of coda to Margot's interview was that the next day, because she said Keith was very pleasant, relatively open about what had happened, quite open about his life since then, about how he was quite happy living by himself. He was kind of a, a recluse, but he didn't appear to be an, an unhappy recluse. Uh, but the next day, she went back um, to basically say thank you. And he saw her, jumped off the bulldozer he was driving, because he was working in the cane fields, and he was, I think it was after they'd burnt the cane down, they sort of bulldozed them, and literally ran into the cane fields and disappeared. And, and Margot said she felt absolutely terrible about it because she really... She wasn't back to try and get more of an interview. She wasn't back to, to sneak some audio. She just wanted to say thanks. Mm. And that's how basically paranoid the poor bloke was about media. He was clearly a pretty complicated guy, Keith Murdoch. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, a very dear friend of mine who passed away about seven or eight years ago called Lynn Colling, who was in that all-black team in 1972-73 in the UK with Keith. And Lindsay had also been the halfback for the Otago team and had played with Keith from the time they were both basically be, you know, starting out rookies in the team. And Lindsay said an incredibly interesting thing to me I felt about Keith once. He said the thing about Keith was that he was always extremely large for his size, and, and Lindsay and Keith knew each other so well that Keith had talked about some of these things with Lynn. And when he was a kid at primary school, he was easily teased because he wasn't verbally very adroit. He was easily teased, and his only answer to it was he'd smack a kid. Yeah. So if a, if a kid was teasing him, it'd, it'd, it'd hit him. And then because he was so much bigger than all the other kids. So you fast forward to a thing, and Lindsay said that basically, for example, when Keith was in the Otago team, he became the go-to babysitter for all the married guys in the team because he loved and got on incredibly well with kids. But he sometimes struggled with, with people because of people tried to tease him or, you know, be verbally mean to him. He didn't have any recourse apart from smacking them. After the dinner, I said to Keith, do you fancy going for a couple of drinks? He said, I can't, because I am going to the security hut with two cases of Guinness to drink with the security men because they've looked after us so well. Now, that me was a very kind act. and He's been labelled all these years basically as a thug. He wasn't. He was a very thoughtful man. There's no question that alcohol played a big part in what eventually happened with Keith, although, funnily enough, Keith himself wasn't a big boozer. Keith wasn't looking for more booze for himself. If he was looking for more alcohol, it would have been for other guys in the team because he was, you know, Mr Hospitality sort of thing. And he had the misfortune to run into a, a security guard and there was, I'm sure, there was a bit of, you know, macho stuff going on and the security guard, it was the wrong person to try and verbalise with. Mm. The other big story that you were talking about at the beginning there was the 81 Springboks yeah. tour. Uh, it really divided us, didn't it? What, like, what's the background to this? The 1981 Springbok tour was the most extraordinary time in my lifetime before COVID-19, no question about that. In the strobe lights of dozens of press cameras flashing, you could see batons going up and coming down on people's heads. The Springbok team arrived in a bus and I just heard banging down here. Obviously, they'd been attacked. I think we had half of New Zealand's police force up there. We were up against protesters who were quite often better equipped than we were. The supporters vented their anger, and the protesters held their ground. A worried Springbok manager contemplated calling the tour off. Because... 
Basically, New Zealand had gone along with apartheid era South Africa and allowed them to dictate to us who could go on the team. So in 1960, for example, they said you can't, you can have no no Maori players, no players of colour in the All Blacks whatsoever, and we agreed to that, which is quite disgraceful. As the late great Sir Fred Allen, our only unbeaten All Black coach, said to me a few years before he died, and I quote, "We should have told him to get stuffed, but we didn't." And then gradually we got to the point where we said, "All right, well." We will only send a team there if we can take players that are that you know if we don't take an all Pakeha team. But we also had this issue, and in the 1970s, it was made clear by Norm Kirk and the Labor government to the um, New Zealand Rugby Union that they couldn't invite a team from apartheid era South Africa to New Zealand. But when Rob Muldoon became Prime Minister, it was a, I mean, he was a very very masterful politician. Um, and and that's the only good thing I can say about him. Uh, is, but, 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 but what he did do was, it was a plank. He said, we, New Zealanders must have, it was this freedom thing. We must have the right and the freedom to play against whoever we like. Rugby Union is going to go ahead with the tour. Uh, I'm convinced of that. Uh, the government doesn't want it to go ahead. Uh, in accordance with our policy, we are not going to stop them. By the time the team came here, the whole tour was massively uh, a massive political issue and there were parts of the country where I don't think it divided things very much at all because there were parts of the country, especially in rural areas, I remember there was a quite a sad story about an anti-tour march in Matamata where I think there were either two or three people turned up mm. and got jeered all the way down the main street sort of thing. On the other hand... In Auckland, where I was living at the time, and I covered the whole of that tour for the Listener magazine with uh, the late great journalist Tony Reid. In Auckland, it divided the city extraordinarily, you know. And one of the things that used to, used to amuse me in a in a sad sort of way, in a you know dark black humour sort of way, was that guys like Ron Don, who at that time had been the chairman of the Auckland Rugby Union and was on the New Zealand Rugby Union board used to say that the protesters in Auckland were all paid for by the Communist Party, you know. So mm. apparently about 30,000 middle-class uh, Aucklanders uh, that marched, for example, on the last day of the tour at Eden Park, apparently they were all in the, in the being paid by Moscow, you know. But And it, it, it also, in certain parts of New Zealand, but not all of them, on the north shore of Auckland, for example, I had friends in, in rugby clubs there, and it had a devastating effect for a couple of years on registration of kids playing rugby because parents said, I don't want to be involved in a game that is in bed with the part of South Africa. How did you feel about it at the time? Do you remember? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's incredibly clear to me, the whole thing. Although I must say, when I see uh, occasionally on television, they have clips from, you know, news reports of that tour, and I look at it and I think, God, was, is this, did this actually happen in New Zealand, you know? It was like a war. The police and protesters divided into squads and then began manoeuvring their troops until 30,000 people approached the one battleground. The bloody skirmishes shocked television audiences around the world. This is our day! We are going to complete this racist With a low-flying plane dropping flower bombs onto the field, no test has ever been played in more bizarre circumstances. I mean, I was very torn because on the one hand, I'm a complete rugby tragic. I've loved the game for as long as I can remember and I've been lucky enough to cover it since 1965 as a journalist. But on the other hand, I was also vehemently anti-South Africa. I'd been there, I'd hated what I'd seen, so I was absolutely anti-tour. 
So I had this absolute dichotomy going on where on the one hand, there's this game that I adore, rugby, and on the other hand, the people that run the sport are doing something that I found reprehensible. The night before the last game of the tour, I spoke at um, the Eden Rugby Club in Sandringham Road, uh, very close to Eden Park, with um, two great, two of our great All Blacks. One was Sir Colin Meads and the other was, was Cal Tremaine. And I remember after we'd spoken and we knew that, that the last game was going to be the next day, Cal Tremaine saying to me, you know, before these Springboks arrived, there's probably would have been nobody in New Zealand keener than me to see them here. Mm. Now, I can't wait for the buggers to get on the plane and go home, he said, because they've wrecked our country, and the worst thing is they don't give us stuff. For me, it was, it was simply that of all the sports and of all the countries in the world that New Zealand and New Zealand rugby could influence, South Africa was by miles the main one because... From Nelson Mandela, who's talked about how when he was on Robben Island and he he heard that the Waikato game in Hamilton had been called off, through to white South Africans who were just stunned that New Zealand would allow. And I remember this appalling story from the white police chief in Johannesburg saying, if you'd given me three men with three machine guns, I would have cleared that field for you in 10 minutes. Mm. Um, So the effect of the protests here in a country where South African, white South African rugby fans believed that we were in their hip pocket, I think was enormous. Speaking of All Blacks Springbok scandals, there is the story that never dies, which is Susie the Waitress. Oh, right. <laughs> 1995 Rugby Cup World Final. I was, at, I was in Johannesburg for that. And I, I, I was at the final and I was sort of astounded watching people like poor Jeff Wilson on his hands and knees throwing up during the game. And, and like other guys that we quickly chatted on the press I chat, chatted on the press benches because we thought, oh, it must be the altitude, you know, that the altitude sickness has got to these All Blacks. Then the next day I went to the All Black Hotel and the first person I bumped into was Brian Lahore. Um, and he, he was part of the management team, but but uh, Laurie Maines was the coach. And and that's when I found out Brian Lahore told me that morning, the Sunday morning, because the game was Saturday afternoon, that the vast majority of the team had been ill. Now, there's been lots of theories since. Very quickly, can I just say this? I did a book uh, about four or five years ago on World Cups, mm. and I got in touch with every single one of the 15 guys that had started that World Cup final for the All Blacks, and 10 of them had been ill in the days before the final. So, number one, I absolutely believe that there was some sort of stomach bug issue, whatever, virus or something, or poisoning. There was, whatever it was, there was something wrong with two-thirds of the team. So, because there's also been some theory saying, oh, it's just a, just a scungy excuse because they weren't actually sick at all. Yes, they were. Second thing is, I mean, even Colin, Me- Colin Meads had a great phrase. He was the manager of the team. He got it as well. And he said, oh, it was like a cow with the grass staggers. <laughs> <laughs> he, collapsed, he collapsed forward into a wardrobe, the poor bloke. So, anyway, so, yes, they had... They had grass daggers, so that's one thing. The second issue about Susie the waitress, that's, I find that, and Laurie Maines has been lambasted in many quarters for suggesting that there was a Susie the waitress. Mm. The short answer is, as the players themselves, when I quizzed them a few years ago about it, who really knows? But I will say this, there was a suggestion by the guy that was the head of security, a South African guy who came from the South African security forces, the security guy for the All Blacks, and he was one that backed up the main thing that maybe there was a Susie the Waitress. On the Thursday night before, 
those guys got horribly sick. About two-thirds of the squad, so not everybody, and not Jonah Lomu, but um, they got horribly sick with food poisoning. There was projectile vomiting, and it included one of the South African contingent assigned to the All Blacks. Do I think it was intentional? Absolutely. Do I think South African rugby was involved? Absolutely not. I'm pretty sure, and all indications as I've tried to get behind this, would seem to be that pressure from betting syndicates, it's the old money in sport, let's shorten the odds. Somehow they were gotten to, I don't know whether it was the food or the water, you mean the tea and the coffee, but those guys were properly sick. Put all that aside, the fact is that for a very brief, astonishing period straight after that game when South Africa won, and Mandela wore Francois Pinar's number six Springbok jersey. There was a brief period after that where it was actually, I believe, totally safe in Johannesburg to go into any restaurant or any bar or to walk the streets safe because, believe it or not, for a brief... And it, I, I, sadly, I don't think it lasted more than about 12 or 24 hours, but for a very brief period, South Africa, bizarrely, black and white, were, appeared to be completely united around rugby. We've been pretty rugby heavy so far, but there is a fascinating story that I was actually, this is a pretty fresh name for me, Robin Tate. Ah, Tatey. You knew him pretty well, I think. I knew him extremely well, yeah. And and now Robin Tate, for people that are wondering who we're talking about, won the gold medal in the discus at the 1974 Commonwealth Games. And he was, without question, one of the most... One of the most unusual characters in track and field. One of the things about Robin, he's who passed away back in the 1980s, sadly, very, very young. He was only in his 40s. But Robin was a man that never saw a drug that he didn't like. And I'm not talking out of school here because he very, very freely talked about it. In fact, in 1970, I was working at the Edinburgh Commonwealth Games and Robin was almost sent home because they had, they had a meet the media thing with the New Zealand team. And Robin was there. And he started talking to a, a guy who was the sports editor of The Scotsman, the daily newspaper in Edinburgh, and Bruce Conn from New Zealand Press Association and myself, because I was working for NZPA at those games as well. And he's out of nowhere. Robin started mouthing on about how all the field athletes like himself were on steroids. <laughs> and he had this, he had this phrase, because Robin was a huge guy, and it, was, it wasn't kilos in those days, it was stones. Yeah. And he weighed about 20 stone, which I think is about 120 kilos. And he said, yes, of course, the thing about steroids is they have an effect on the male anatomy. He said, basically, I'm a 20-stone bombshell with a two-inch fuse. (laughs) (laughs) He he just went on and on and on about what steroids do and how good they were and how much they made you stronger and tougher and more aggressive when you're through and all that sort of thing. So Bruce Bruce Connor and I went away and we went, what the hell are we going to do? And we, we agreed between us. That is, and Bruce actually wrote the story, but I'm, it's, I'm just as, well, not guilty exactly, but I was, I was just as keen as, or determined as he was that we had to do it because if we didn't write the story, it was going to be front page in the Scotsman newspaper the next day. So the story fired out to New Zealand, you know, steroids help me, says Robin Tate, and the guy from the Scotsman didn't write it. <laughs> so, so Tatey, but then here's a measure of Robin Tate because I, I read it, you couldn't help, he was a lovable rogue, you couldn't help but like the guy. For about a day, he was sulking and he wouldn't speak to me. And then after about 36 hours, he came up to me and said, well, I wish you hadn't written that bloody story, but it was accurate. (laughs) (laughs) And and anyway, Joe McMinimum, who was the manager of the team, was determined that he'd send Tatey home. And then for some reason, they backed off it. And um, lo and behold, four years later, he's winning a gold in Christchurch. And yeah, he, he was incorrigible. 
And and sadly, while while there was a lot about Robin that was very very funny, in the end, it, it, his, his his lifestyle and and what ultimately um, killed him, funnily enough, wasn't wasn't steroids, but his, his breakfast consisted of taking about four or five Voltaren for the aches and pains in his body from all the heavy training he'd done, washed down with black coffee, and he basically eventually burnt a hole in his stomach, the mm. poor guy, and died in Auckland Hospital. But it wasn't just Robin that was taking them. And uh, um, Graham May, and again, I'm not talking out of school because he was the weightlifter who won gold at the 1974 Commonwealth Games. And Graham May in later life said that he was embarrassed about the fact that, that he was using steroids at the time. What's happening with the Team New Zealand thing at the moment? I mean, what's your, what's your kind of read on this? Phil Goff is pleased uh, by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment investigation that is now underway into the spending of public money by Team New Zealand. Team New Zealand has denied any wrongdoing in the way it has handled public funds. Won't be drawn on allegations either laid at its door. Almost $250 million in taxpayer and ratepayer money has gone into preparing for the 2021 competition. Syndicate boss Grant Dalton says the team will prove there has been no misuse of public money. This is a sort of, it's a bit of a weird story really, isn't it? I mean, do you think it it, it sort of touches those levels of sporting scandals of years gone by? The America's Cup wouldn't be the America's Cup without scandal. I mean, Mm. whether it's Dirty Dennis Connor accusing New Zealand of cheating with the, with the surface on some of the boats and calling um, Bruce Farr, the designer, a loser and get off stage and all that sort of stuff, or Dennis Connor stalking out on, on Paul Holmes. I would like to uh, wish you luck in the future and sure look forward to being down here with the New Zealand uh, people and their upcoming fabulous event. Thank you very much for having me. But would you be interested in apologising to Mr Farr in public, Mr Connor? whether it's Sir Michael Fay basically trying to ambush Connor with the big bait in San Diego and things like that. There is perpetually scandal about the America's Cup. And one of the things I think that it will, as long as the America's Cup is around, there will always be intrigue and scandal around it because it's basically, to a very, very large degree, it's the egos of massively wealthy, and, that, and they happen to all be men, so it's it's the egos of massively wealthy men bashing against each other, and in the process, a lot of the, I think a lot of those massively wealthy men have been used to being able to buy their way to success, and that doesn't always happen in the America's Cup. What's happening with the, with the most recent thing with <laughs> Team New Zealand just sort of beggars belief. The idea that New Zealand sport would somehow be involved in an, an Hungarian bank scandal staggers belief. How it will all finish, who the hell knows? But what I do know. Once this America's Cup is over, you can guarantee there'll be another scandal coming down the pike for the next one. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Newstalk ZB host and sports writer Phil Gifford. Kaki Teano.